0: Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, our guest is Christina Santafer. We're going to talk about drugs, speech, and hotel art. Our guest today is Christina Santafer with the Goldwater Institute. Uh, and We're going to talk about a number of different legal cases that they have been involved in. So welcome to the program.
2: Hey, thanks for having
1: me. The Goldwater Institute has been instrumental in promoting something called Right to Try. So let's start there. What is Right to Try?
2: Yeah, you know, Right to Try is a very simple concept. It says that people that face certain death, people who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness, should be able to decide with their doctors whether or not they want to try medicines or treatments that could prolong their life or even save their lives but haven't yet been fully approved by the Federal Food and Drug Administration. Uh, The FDA is in charge of approving drugs and treatments for market, and it's a very, very lengthy approval process. In fact, it can take on average about 15 years before a potentially life-saving drug uh, is conceived and then goes all the way through the testing process and is approved by the government for market. And in our opinion, it, it was absolutely unacceptable that thousands of Americans every year suffer and die without being able to try some of these treatments that have passed basic safety testing that, that, that are being given to people in FDA clinical trials, uh, but, but are still out of reach for, for many terminal Americans. And so for, we thought that it was a fundamental right, the right to try to save your own life. And that's what the right to try is all about,
1: right? So, as I understand it, there there's several steps in the approval process. There's a there's some testing related to you know safety, and then there's a a separate level of testing to see you know are we sure that this drug actually works or not? And so, right to right to try, as I understand your answer, you're saying after the safety stuff has been done, so we know it's not going to hurt you. Also, in the absence of right to try, uh, terminally ill patient, of course, is going to die, people should be willing, if they want to, to, to you know, take that chance, uh, and maybe it does, uh, would help them. Is that the idea?
2: Yeah, that's right. Now, now this is going to be a little bit of an oversimplification, but uh, in essence, there are about three phases to the FDA clinical trial testing, and so we start out by determining whether or not the medicine is safe. Um, That is a very uh, short process, involves the fewest number of people, but we're basically testing to make sure that the drug or the treatment isn't going to kill you or doesn't have any very, very serious side effects. After that, the FDA goes into determining whether or not the treatment is effective and that is whether or not we'll actually do what we think it's going to do. Uh, And there, the testing is lengthier. We're looking uh, for additional side effects, we're looking for dosage, And, and that's what happens in phases two and three. Now, as you've mentioned, if I'm dying, if I'm facing certain death, my doctor says that I only have years or maybe even months to live, So long as that medicine has made its way through that first phase, we know it's not going to kill me, but we know that my illness will, we believe it's a fundamental right for that patient in consultation with his or her doctor to be able to decide whether they want to try that medicine. There's no guarantees. We don't know whether the medicine will work. Uh, but what we do know is that without treatment you're going to die and we don't think that you should have to beg the federal government for permission to try something that could save your life even if those chances are very remote this isn't just about saving somebody's life but it's really about restoring human dignity it's about allowing that individual to make that choice for his or herself as to whether or not they want they want to take that risk or they want they want to try something even though it might not work and that's what it's really all about. And keep in mind, too, that we're really drawing arbitrary lines in a sense here. The FDA tests treatments, you know, sometimes this testing goes on, as I mentioned, for 15 years. And even then, there's never any certainty. You don't know whether or not a particular treatment is going to work for a particular individual. We're all very different. Our circumstances are very different. Our illnesses are very different. And so really, for any of us, we are just we're just trying without any certainty. Um, what we're saying is that if these treatments, if the government is going to allow these treatments to be given to individuals in a clinical trial setting, they ought to allow all dying individuals the same opportunity to try to save their own life
0: so is this is this primarily a federal issue, or is this also a state issue?
2: Yeah, you know it's it's funny. in the case of right to try, it really became a little bit of both. Now, as most of your listeners will probably, No, the Federal Food and Drug Administration, they oversee the final market approval of drugs. That is a federal law. And so, of course, in most cases, federal law is supreme, and there's not a whole lot that states can do. The Goldwater Institute, though, when we crafted Right to Try, we decided to take the fight to the states. And the reason why is because for basically half a century, patients, policymakers, lawmakers across the country have been trying to scale back on uh, the FDA, these FDA regulations, so that dying patients would be able to get access to drugs that could help them. This has been, this is not just a problem that the Goldwater Institute um, realized over the last couple of years. This is something that that people have been trying to affect change for decades. But as we all know, the wheels of justice turn slowly in Washington D.C., and it's been very, very difficult to get the FDA or Congress to do anything about this issue. So at the Goldwater Institute we, we really focus on the power of the states because in our opinion our founding fathers gave us not just a federal constitution but also the constitutions of the states and the job of the states is to step in and protect their citizens when the federal government fails to do so. And again this issue is about a fundamental right, perhaps one of the most fundamental rights of all the right to try to save your own life and we believe that the federal government and the FDA specifically is violating this fundamental right when it tells you that you cannot try a medicine that has already been deemed safe by the FDA and that could help you save your own life. So we created this reform at the state level and again the the reform is really simple. It says once a drug has passed basic safety testing you can work with your doctor to determine whether you want to try it if you have a terminal illness even if it isn't yet fully approved by the FDA. Now. If at any point throughout that approval process, the drug is pulled by the FDA, if the FDA determines that it's not effective or finds some additional safety risks or things like that, uh, and that drug is no longer available to patients in clinical trials, then it's no longer available through Right to Try. Uh, So it's really just an equitable measure. We started that out as, as a state reform, and actually just a little bit over four years ago, Colorado became the first state to pass that law to protect the citizens uh, of Colorado's right to try to save their own lives. In just over four years, 42 states, almost every single state in the country, passed right to try laws. And and these reforms were not Republican reforms or Democrat reforms. These were broadly bipartisan reforms. Many states um, had unanimous or near unanimous support. It wasn't about partisanship. It wasn't about politics. It was really just about people and principles. And so, as these states stepped up to protect uh, individual rights, we saw something really phenomenal happen. And I, and I think the right to try movement success is really a, an illustration of the power of federalism. What we saw is that for the first time in decades, Congress started to take this issue seriously. Because even in Washington, D.C., it's really, really hard to ignore. A problem when 42 states are stepping up and saying this is a problem and we need to do something about it and so Congress took up the issue uh, it passed a right to try a federal version of the law actually passed the United States Senate uh, unanimously and then it went over to the house passed the house with bipartisan support although not unanimously there and then earlier this year President Trump signed right to try into law and it is now federal law and the law of the land and so I think that not only is this important from a fundamental rights perspective and a patient's rights perspective, but it's it's a really important illustration of the power of the states. If you can't get something done in Washington, D.C., then maybe, you know, the solution to Washington's problems isn't always in Washington. We can look to the states, the states can step up, they can protect people's rights, and they can drive power, uh, they can drive reform, rather, in Washington, D.C.
0: Even, even with the, uh, the passage of the bill, uh, I'd still see some commentary opposing right to try what, I'm a little surprised by the controversy, what what even is the argument against Right to Try?
2: Yeah, you know, it, it is surprising. Um, the argument against Right to Try comes primarily from uh, people who are, work in the bioethics field, um, and so they're university professors and academics, and in their opinion, anything that goes outside of the FDA system, anything that doesn't get the government's the uh, blessing uh, of approval is it really should not be done. Uh, they believe that patients shouldn't be able to make their own choices, especially when they're facing a terminal illness. And one of the main reasons they give for that is because they say that right to try would be false hope. Um, and the, this is that, you know, a, a treatment is not necessarily guaranteed to work. As I mentioned before, a treatment is never guaranteed to work, but certainly when it's still undergoing testing, um, the chances that it will. Uh, help any particular individual or save their lives is is going to be they're going to be a lot smaller, and a desperate patient who is terminally ill and uh, has tried all other government-approved options is out of options. Well, they might choose to try something under right to try, hoping that it will actually save their lives. And if it doesn't save their life, then uh, then then they will have you know, have undergone um, this exercise that has given them, that they thought would give them uh, hope, and it it failed, and that would be false hope, and that would, in the words of these bioethicists, uh, be much worse than had they not even tried to begin with. You know, I have spoken to patients and patient advocates throughout this country over the past five years on this issue, and every single time I ask them, do you think right to try is false hope, They are very, you know, these patient advocates differ on a lot of things, but they all give me the same answer when I ask them this question. They say, absolutely not. Right to try is just hope. There is no false hope. We are not stupid. We know what our odds are. We know that these medicines may not help us, but we want the right to be able to make that decision for ourselves. Now, some patients will decide that they don't want to try a treatment under right to try. Some of them will decide that you know they've suffered enough and, and it's time to just stop trying and that's fine. But others really want the ability to be able to make that decision for themselves and to know that they've tried everything, even if this treatment won't work. I think that those who are opposed to right to try and to make this false hope type of argument are really taking a very paternalistic approach that government knows best, that government is some sort of neutral arbiter uh, that that ought to make decisions for individuals, especially individuals who are who are in a very poor state, um, who are who are facing certain death, and that people cannot be trusted to make their own decisions. And and while I think that the folks that work for the FDA have good intentions, uh, and the people making that argument have good intentions, I think they're forgetting that government is made up of pe- by people, and everybody has sort of, you know, their own biases and their own proclivities, the FDA is an extremely risk averse agency. It's extremely risk averse. The FDA knows that if it allows somebody to take a medicine and it doesn't work, or if it approves a medicine for market sale and it ends up hurting or killing somebody, uh, the FDA is going to be responsible for that in the sense that everybody's going to point their finger at the agency and blame the agency and say, how could you let These people make this decision. How could you approve this treatment um, when, when it wasn't perfect? But nobody sees the countless number of people who suffer and die because a treatment wasn't approved fast enough. Nobody sees the dignity that is taken away from an individual who wants to be able to make his or her own decision and his or her own life choices. Those are unseen costs and they are astronomical costs. But that is that's the system and that's the way the system is set up and so you know i I think i think that people who make those arguments that the fda should be able to to decide because the fda is somehow neutral really fail to understand that government is just made up of people that have their own biases uh, just like individuals nobody has perfect information not even the fda even after a drug is approved for market we don't have perfect information. Sometimes decades later, drugs that have been approved for market are pulled because we found out about some safety issue that we didn't know about. And so the best that we can do is make sure that people are empowered with the information they need to make the decisions for themselves and then allow individuals to make those decisions with their doctors and with their families because the consequences are, the, are go to the individual alone the fda doesn't feel the consequences it's just the individual that does and the suffering and the joy that go along with one's life and that that come from those decisions they're the individuals
1: so uh, maybe this is just uh, an example of the twisted way that my my mind works but you know for for a drug to be uh, approved finally it has to go through these uh, clinical trials you need a lot of people to to take the drug or whatever to see whether or not it works And I wonder if I think, you know, if I had a terminal condition and right to try was in place, why would I, why would I ever go through a clinical trial where I might be getting the placebo if I could just, you know, use right to try and get the, get the drug itself? So, I mean, is there any concern that it might, that right to try might undermine the uh, approval process in general?
2: Yeah, so to answer your question specifically, Right to Try actually, the the federal law actually has a provision for that built in to make sure that we're not pulling people away from clinical trials. So Right to Try is only available to terminally ill patients if they could not get into a clinical trial um, and have otherwise exhausted their government approved options. And that was specifically put into the law to address the concerns that you're voicing right now that, well, if people have an option to try a medicine without having to go through a clinical trial they might choose to do that in which case we may not have anyone go through a clinical trial Um, now a couple of things one the number of people that actually are accepted into clinical trials is extremely small only about three percent of all terminally ill patients are able to enroll in a clinical trial Um, oftentimes they are too sick to get into a clinical trial clinical trials are testing very very specific scientific propositions. Um, And and it's important to do that. It's important to have closed trials where we're testing a you know the effects of a particular treatment on a particular patient population, and that is very, very important from a scientific standpoint. Uh, but it is a very controlled group, and, and oftentimes patients are, are sick, they have compromised immune systems, especially when they're facing certain death, and a lot of times they'll get rejected from a clinical trial. Ironically, um, people are sometimes too well to get into clinical trials also. If we want to test the, uh, the effects of a particular treatment, on an individual, we sometimes need uh, their symptoms to, and their uh, the per- progress of their disease to be further along, and so sometimes people are rejected from clinical trials for being too healthy, uh, which is of course extremely cruel when you think about it. Again, it may be scientifically sound, but. Uh, in reality, that means that, that a patient may be able to take a treatment that could help them and could slow or stop the progression of a terminal illness, but because they're not able to get access to that medication early enough, that illness would could progress and, and it could be too late um, to reverse those effects by the time the individual actually does gain access to the drug. So right to try is for those people. It's for the 97% that aren't able to make it into clinical trials that are either too sick or too uh, too well to be able to get into a clinical trial or otherwise don't fit the criteria, live too far away, et cetera. You know, it, it, that does raise uh, another question though. When you talk about clinical trials, you mentioned placebos. It's true that in many clinical trials, the way that we test whether or not a treatment is effective is we give a certain amount of the patients who have entered that clinical trial a placebo, a, a, a fake pill or a fake treatment. Um, and then we test that as a control against the people who are rece- actually receiving the treatment. And if you think about it, you know, and, and this, is, this is difficult because um, many people still see the clinical trial system as a scientific gold standard. There's good reason to believe that clinical trials are really important. Um, but, but when you think about it, if that's the only pathway uh, for somebody to get access to a treatment, you're condemning a certain number of people uh, possibly to death or at least to um, you know, getting to their illness progressing uh, further because they're not getting the treatment. They're getting a placebo instead. And so uh, it really is a system that itself should probably be reevaluated, especially as technology becomes, uh, as technology progresses so that we are able to design medicines that are more and more tailored to individuals uh, and their precise uh, DNA and their precise uh, conditions. And we're getting more and more toward pre- precision medicine and further and further away from sort of this, these group treatments that are designed to treat uh, groups of, of patients. I think that these are all things that the FDA needs to seriously evaluate uh, as, it, as time progresses because um, one size fits all. You know, a, a lot of times people who, who believe in liberty and the free market argue that one size fits all. Uh, governing doesn't make a lot of sense, and, and top-down approaches don't make a lot of sense. And I would argue the same is true with, with the FDA's approach to medicine, that that the more we try to govern by this top-down, one-size-fits-all philosophy, the more um, that we're seriously putting people in jeopardy of, of having their lives um, lost because we're trying to treat people with broad brush, brush strokes, and and the technology is such that that we are able to fine tune medicines and treatments for individuals.
1: So let's turn now to something way way more controversial, which is free speech. Uh, Goldwater has developed model legislation on campus free speech. Why don't you tell us what that's all about?
2: Yeah, so you know it's 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 sort of a sad state. Of affairs for us to say that free speech is controversial these days Um, free speech is something that our founding fathers thought was extremely important Um, you know we, we talk about the right to try to save your own life as being a fundamental right free speech is also a fundamental right it's in essence the right to advocate one's views but it's extremely important because Without words and the freedom to use them, you know, we, we lose the ability to communicate, we learn we lose the ability to create and to connect with others, but also to debate, to, to have our ideas challenged and to challenge others' ideas and to resist. And that's of course most important when we talk about fighting back against government that could trample our rights. And so it's extremely important that we protect the right to free speech. And I would argue that really nowhere is the need for open debate more important than on America's college campuses. Students go to universities and that is really one of the first opportunities for them to be able to be exposed to ideas that are different than their own and to have those ideas challenged and and, and to be able to ask questions and think critically. And unfortunately, um, Speech is being stifled on our universities today. And it's really happening in a number of ways. Um, and, and you know, one, one of the ways is free speech codes. Um, this is where university administrators step in and... They say, well, you're only going to be able to discuss certain topics on campus. Certain topics are off limits because they might offend people. We don't want to offend people at the university. We want to make sure that we're only talking about things that will be generally accepted and, and not hurt anybody's feelings. And so they institute these speech codes. Uh, I would I would argue that that even more preposterous are these speech zones. Um, this is limiting geographically where speakers or demonstrators can, can uh, share messages. Now we're not talking about within the classroom, but we're talking about specific places on the university's public um, or open campus. And so they are relegating the speech to very, oftentimes very, very difficult areas of the campus to get to you know, presumably hoping that, well, then that message is going to be stifled because people aren't going to be able to interact with it. Um, Some interesting examples, the University of Hawaii, uh, their Hilo campus actually located their speech zone in a flood zone. So if you wanted to go and protest or engage in free speech or goodness, even hand out copies of the Constitution, uh, you had to go uh, to this area that was actually located in a flood zone to be able to do that. Uh, oftentimes these, these speech zones make up less than a percentage of the actual campus. So very, very small areas where people are able to exchange ideas freely. And, and that's really ironic if you think about it, because again, we, we typically think of our universities as places where people are freely exchanging ideas. And so for a university to say that you can only freely exchange ideas in an unregulated fashion, uh, in, in a tiny little place off in one corner of the campus just shows you how far we have strayed from those principles of free speech. Uh, sometimes we hear about security fees. These are fees that are based on the content of a speaker that the university will charge a club that's inviting that speaker before that speaker's allowed to come. So the university will argue well. The speaker that you want to invite is controversial. We're going to have to provide security to make sure that... Uh, you know that riots don't break out or that people don't get upset and so we're going to charge you usually some astronomical fee if you want to invite that speaker and of course student groups don't have money Uh, oftentimes they're not getting money uh, from outside the campus and they're not able to afford those types of security fees and what that means in reality is that those speakers are never able to be invited and to visit the campus and that's just one more way that the university is discriminating against messages and messengers based on the content of that message or who that messenger is. And then finally, I would argue one of the worst ways that university officials are suppressing speech on our campuses is by allowing violent protests and shout downs to delay or cancel speeches. This is sometimes referred to as the heckler's veto. And the idea goes that if if a speaker comes to campus that some find controversial or some don't want to hear that person's message or to allow that person to speak, then a group of students will threaten violence or engage in violence. Um, We've seen the examples in the news. Sometimes they will block entry to the facility where the speaker is trying to speak, and so nobody's able to go in and hear that speaker. Sometimes they'll throw things. Uh, Sometimes they'll scream and yell so loudly that... That the speaker isn't able to be heard, and and they do this in order to silence speech. Now, the universities oftentimes will just sort of turn a deaf ear. They'll turn a blind eye, and they'll say, "Well, you know, we don't we don't want to get involved here at all." Um, and what that has the effect of is that it has the effect of suppressing speech. It allows these students, to behave violently um, and and to stifle speech on campus, and I would argue that the university officials that allow that to happen are complicit in uh, suppressing free speech. So the Goldwater Institute put together a model bill that state legislatures can pass, and and what it really does is it creates these interlocking incentives that respect and protect free expression on college campuses. We think that. The universities and the university administrators, uh, uh, if public universities, they are government officials that have a duty to protect free speech and the free exchange of ideas on college campuses. So the bill does a couple of things. It eliminates all of those things that we talked about. It gets rid of speech zones, speech codes, discriminatory fees. It says you cannot discriminate against speech or a speaker based on the content of that speech or who the speaker is. Um, it requires universities to be neutral on public policy issues, or at least to strive to be neutral on controversial public policy issues. Uh, this, the idea is that this allows students and professors to speak freely and speak their mind without worrying that they are running afoul of the university's official position on a particular issue. It also encourages university officials to discipline individuals that violate the free speech rights of others. So if, if students are violently preventing people from speaking or people from protesting speakers, then they ought to be disciplined, um, you know, perhaps uh, suspended or something of that nature. There ought to be consequences for individuals that are silencing the speech of others. If not, Um, It certainly sets a very, very uh, dangerous precedent and and it incentivizes students that that don't want to hear a message that they find controversial or offensive to just act violently. And that's really inappropriate. And then it also ensures that those students who are, you know, who who are accused of violating somebody's free speech rights are, are given due process. So they're they're told about what they did, they're, they're given um, notice and an opportunity to be heard and to defend themselves. And altogether, this bill kind of creates these interlocking incentives that, that the university is affirming a policy of free speech. It says that it's protecting the right of speakers and the right of protesters to be heard and to exchange ideas and information without violently uh, shutting each other down. We think that this is a really, really important policy for states to come in and pass, and and it's actually been implemented in a number of states. North Carolina, Arizona, Georgia, and uh, the Board of Regents of Wisconsin have all adopted this policy.
0: Certainly there's there's other groups out there like ALEC that have competing bills, and you've already touched on the fact that the Goldwater bill um, has this disciplinary uh, measure. It seems a little counterintuitive that a libertarian leaning organization would be uh, backing a bill that has a, a disciplinary or punitive measure. Why is it necessary to to have that that measure in your bill?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's counterintuitive at all. in fact, i think I think what's what is counterintuitive is to say that university officials, it's okay for them to stand by and allow violence uh, and shutdowns on campuses. Peaceful protests are a form of free speech. They should be protected, and the only way that peaceful protests uh, and speakers' rights are going to be protected on campus is if university officials extend those free speech protections to everybody. But violent activity, the, the type that is touched upon by this legislation, it's not protected speech at all. It's it's conduct that is designed to silence speech. And in fact, it is not speech at all. It's it's a crime. Um, and so it, it is really shameful that these university officials are allowing people to step up and suppress speech because you know, again, in our opinion, that's really the university condoning violence um, and condoning the suppression of speech, and the ripple effects of that are are felt. um, It only takes one time, really, for a speaker to come to campus who might be controversial uh, and to have students engage in violence or to have students prohibit somebody um, from speaking or uh, to have protesters uh, stop individuals from being able to go into the facility and, and hear the message, all it takes is that one time and the university refusing to do anything about it. Um, and, and after that, then students get the message or, or non-students or other protesters get the message that, well, all we have to do is threaten violence or act violently uh, and we're able to suppress speech. and And then nobody is going to be invited who might be perceived as controversial to a campus. And students are not going to have um, the ability to hear from speakers that they and hear viewpoints that they otherwise wouldn't have heard. And so that's why this is really important. Um, we actually are seeing that 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 these provisions that hold people accountable for violating other's speech rights are already, having the desired effect. Um, I mentioned the University of Wisconsin, the Board of Regents adopted um, this, uh, adopted uh, a policy that's based on the Goldwater Institute's policy. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a student group invited Katie Pavlich to come speak at the university and, you know, she's a political commentator and and a Second uh, Amendment uh, rights advocate. and. So her message is, was perceived as being controversial, and there was a group of students that originally had planned to pre- physically prevent people from being able to get into the venue to hear Katie. Um, they planned to uh, engage in violent acts in order to ensure that her message would not be heard and people would not be able to hear her. Uh, but. Then the university, then the board of regents adopted this policy that said, "No, you know, there are going to be consequences for people who act violently and suppress speech." And so those students decided and said to stand outside, right outside of the venue where Katie was speaking. Um, they protested and they protested uh, quite seriously. You can you can Google the the incident and and you can see the protests online. They had a a very very strong message, um, but this that message got to be heard and so did Katie Pavlich's message and and it worked out really well and those students attribute their decision to protest outside of the venue rather than to silence Ms. Pavlich um to the the policy that the Board of Regents had put in place that there would be consequences for students who silence speech and so uh, Katie Pavlich got to speak the protesters got to speak and the students got to hear both they got to hear the protesters and understand Um, Their message and they got to hear Katie Pavlich and then with all armed with all that information They got to make a decision for themselves. That is what um, That is what the ideal situation is on on a university campus and and that's what we're hoping um, That these policies and that these that that this bill uh, Will create is a system where everybody feels protected where everybody feels that um, so long as they're not being violent um, that their speech will be heard Uh, and that people can be exposed to a variety of ideas and make those decisions for themselves.
0: Talk a little bit about the the due process mechanisms themselves. How do those mechanisms prevent the school administrators from using these disciplinary measures to silence speech?
2: Yeah, well, and that's why the the due process protections are so important. Um, And and to be clear, nothing in uh, either the model policy or the policies that have been adopted in these states give administrators any more power than they already have. Administrators already have the power, of course, to discipline people on their campuses. They already, they also already have the authority um, to uh, declare policies in favor of free speech and to, to create campus-wide, not not small speech zones off in one corner of campus, but campus-wide speech zones where speech is protected. Uh, the problem is the administrators have failed to do that. They have failed to protect free speech um, and and in some cases, they have failed to follow uh, due process protections. And so this law is only making sure that administrators do their jobs. It's not giving them any additional powers. In fact, the due process protections are actually making sure that administrators don't abuse their powers. So uh, there are a couple of things. And again, our, our policy is a model policy. Um, the states that have adopted this policy, um, have, you know, they have the freedom to be able to adjust as they see fit. But if a person is accused of violating somebody's free speech rights, and um, they, you know, they're accused of engaging in violence in order to suppress speech, and they are facing punishment, they're given notice um, that they, you know, that, that they are being accused of doing that, they're giving an opportunity to be heard. Um, again, these provisions uh, vary state to state, but, um, but you know, we encourage uh, the provisions to include protections where if there's going to be serious consequences to that student's future, perhaps suspension or expulsion, um, that that person is given a lawyer so that they're not going into some kind of kangaroo court, as we often hear about um, in the university setting, but that they're actually given legal representation. And so the the due process protections act in a way where um, the university administrators better have evidence and they better be treating these students fairly if they're going to uh, face consequences. Otherwise, um, you know, the university is not going to get away with being able to punish these students. And so this the system that we're setting up is a lot more like a legal system with protections for these individuals. rights, uh, And not the, the current system where university officials kind of pick and choose. Uh, who they want to punish, and and sometimes even punish students simply for expressing controversial uh, viewpoints themselves. Um, rather than protecting speech on campus, uh, they they will punish students who make others feel uncomfortable or who say something that might be controversial. And so we, we think these due process protections are absolutely necessary to ensure that that no longer happens. That students aren't being aren't afraid to speak um, out because you know the university might decide to punish them so it it, again it's all of these elements of this bill are important to work together to ensure that free speech is respected and frankly i think that once we see more states adopting policies like this and once we see administrators um, knowing that 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 the public and the legislature is keeping an eye on them and making sure that they respect uh, and protect free speech on campus, I actually think that we'll see fewer and fewer of these incidents. We'll see fewer uh, incidents of violence uh, and suppression of speech on campuses, and we'll probably also see uh, fewer incidents of university uh, officials abusing their powers because these processes will be in place. They'll learn the rules, and um, and also these bills require public reports about free speech on campus. So anytime that somebody's going to be disciplined, or or if a student is disciplined, um, we will know. The public will know. We'll be able to read these reports. We'll be able to see what the university is doing in order to protect speech, and and these administrators will know that they can no longer uh, get away with suppressing speech on campus, but that the legislature, the state legislature, um, is giving them a very clear directive to protect speech on campus.
1: When you talk about speech issues on colleges, I think a common response is to say, sure, colleges are crazy. Uh, the colleges uh, have always been kind of crazy. Uh, you know, camp campuses are islands of insanity and degeneracy in which we quarantine people who can't function in the broader society. Uh, but, you know, whatever the craziness <laughs> there is kind of, it's kind of isolated, right? And it doesn't, it's not necessarily going to bleed out uh, or be important to speech in general. So how do you see that? How do you see this state of free speech in general? And do you do you see like kind of a relationship between what goes on in the campuses and, broader public life in terms of... Oh,
2: absolutely. Of... Yeah, I think it's quite the contrary. I think that, again, you know, universities are supposed to be the places where students um, and young people's ideas are challenged, where people are forming their own beliefs and their, their own thoughts, where they're learning how to think critically, sometimes for the very first time. Uh, and so I think it's absolutely imperative. Um, that that not only that free speech is protected on college campuses but that but the notion of free speech that that people know that they can't be sheltered from ideas um, or that you know ideas are not going to be silenced simply because uh, they might be controversial but quite the opposite and I think that if we that college campuses are critical because if we stifle speech at the college level People will never be exposed to ideas with which they disagree, um, and if they and if they get the impression that it's okay to stifle the speech of others simply because uh, we don't like what that person is saying, uh, that sets individuals up uh, for for a lifetime of um, that exact practice. And I think that that you know we already see the consequences of this spilling out into civil society generally. Um, we see uh, people. Um, who do not like uh, a particular message or messenger, rather than than arguing um, and constructively criticizing that particular message, we see people getting violent. Um, certainly, violent protests are are not uh, limited just to college campuses. Um, so we see people meeting speech with violence, and you know, this is not um, an academic exercise. Oftentimes. Uh, we hear people, enemies of free speech, um, say specifically that speech itself, that, that speech with which one disagrees can be violence. They equate speech with violence. They say speech that makes me upset, speech that is abhorrent, is actually a violent act in and of itself. And so therefore, it is justified to meet and suppress that speech with physical violence. Uh, that is a very, very dangerous proposition. Speech is, is not violence. Um, and But those who equate speech with violence or certain speech with violence are using that as a justification to act violently, which of course is a, is a violation of another person's rights. Um, and if this is what students are learning on college campuses, that, that messages that they don't like um, are that it's okay to meet those messages with violence in order to suppress them. Um, That is setting us up for a very, very dangerous future. Um, And and certainly people are going to continue to turn to government to suppress messages. Um, And this is dangerous as well, as as I mentioned before, government is is not some sort of unbiased uh, third party. Government is made up by people that have their own biases. And if the more that we give government the power to suppress speech and, and to designate speech codes and to decide what speech is okay and what speech is not okay, that, that's very dangerous because um, we do not ever want government in a position where it's picking and choosing uh, messages and where it's picking what is desirable and what is not desirable. The, the solution for biased and hateful speech and certainly there is a lot of hateful speech out there and there are a lot of messages that Um, you know, that that we ought to stand up to, and that we ought not accept as truth, and that we ought to criticize. But the solution for bias and hateful speech is more speech, not less. Uh, There was a case in the 1970s um, that uh, involved the Virginia State Board of Pharmacy, and the Supreme Court was dealing with the question of whether or not the state government could prohibit ads for prescription prices. Pharmacies were advertising prices for prescriptions, the state uh, wanted to prevent that. And the Supreme Court said absolutely not. Uh, information is not in itself harmful. Uh, people are need to be trusted to make their own decisions. And the only way that they can make those decisions is if they're well enough informed. So it is not government's role to suppress speech. It's not government's role to stifle information. The only way that people can make decisions for themselves and critically think for themselves is to open up the channels of communication, to give people all of the information, to give people both sides of the story, and then to let them make those decisions for themselves.
0: I'd, I'd love to take the time to go through some other uh, some other cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop and maybe the deplatforming of uh, Alex Jones, but um, we want to talk to you a little bit about property rights. That's another area of your focus. Tell us a little bit about your work on property rights.
2: Property rights, uh, sadly, I, I think most people, regardless of how they feel about the state of free speech, most people recognize that as an important right. Uh, sadly, these days, I don't think the same is true about property rights. Property rights uh, are perhaps our most fundamental of all rights because they're the guardian of all of rights. Our founding fathers uh, chose to mention property rights in the Constitution more than any other right. And they did that because they knew that if we didn't have the right to own ourselves and to own property, then we really couldn't exercise any of our other rights. You can't exercise your right to free speech if you're not allowed to own a printing press and you can't exercise your right to freedom of religion if you're not allowed to own a church and so again property rights are fundamental um they're they're what uh we refer to as the cornerstone of liberty in in a book that i co-authored um with my husband timothy sandifer again because they are the guardian of all of their rights and yet today um decades of very very bad court decisions have relegated property rights uh, really to second-class status. We no longer have a presumption that you should be free to own property and use it as you see fit so long as you're not harming someone else. Instead, the opposite is true. The, The presumption is that, well, property is a... Um, is a permission that you get from the government. The right to use your property is only valid insofar as it's good for society uh, and and if the government decides that um, it does not want you to use your property in a certain way then you as the individual have to justify if you challenge that regulation in court you have to justify why you ought to be able to be free. The government does not have to prove that it should be able to regulate Uh, and, and, and this is Really, really important. Um we see this playing out in a variety of different situations. Um, many of your listeners may be familiar with uh, the Kilo versus New London case. This case is over a decade old now. I can't believe that so much time has gone by. But that was sort of the culmination of um, the the government's abuse of its eminent domain power. The Constitution gives the government the power of eminent domain. It says that it can take private property. In very limited circumstances. Uh, it can take private property if there is a public use um, and if that property is going to be taken to be put to a public use then the government has to compensate private property owners for taking that property. Um, that power had been exploited and broadened uh, again till it culminated in the Kilo case where officials in Connecticut decided that they wanted to take private property from middle-class individuals um, take away their homes and give it away for a private redevelopment project where um, the state would put together, uh, would would wipe out those homes, would knock them all down, and would replace it with high-rise condos and fancy shopping areas and restaurants in hopes that it would attract the company Pfizer to the area. So, quite literally, um, the government was stealing private property from one class of individuals to give it away to uh, what the government deemed as more desirable for that area. Just an absolutely abhorrent decision. And yet the United States Supreme Court rubber-stamped that decision. The Supreme Court said, well, you know, the, the, even though we're taking away private property to, and to give it away for what many would deem a private purpose, a private redevelopment project, uh, nevertheless, that project still has a public use because the government will see increased tax revenue. Um, if we take away property from from people who are lower middle class and give it away to wealthy people, the government will get more tax revenue, and also um, hopefully these companies coming in will create jobs. And uh, this is this is good enough um, to be a public use or a public purpose, and so the government rubber stamped that decision. Uh, just an absolutely horrible decision, but. The silver lining is that people were shocked. People across the political aisle were shocked that the Supreme Court essentially said that nobody's home was safe because if a government official decided that somebody else ought to be using your property or that your property could be put to better use um, by somebody else, it could come in and seize your home and there's nothing that you could do about it. And so the Kelo case really taught people uh, about private property rights. It taught people that Private property rights are not tools of the wealthy and well-connected, as, as some often say. But instead, private property rights are essential to protect the rights of average people. Um, that pe- The wealthy and well-connected are always able to protect their property rights. They have the influence and the connections and the money to be able to step in and make sure that their property rights are secure. It's the average people. It's the Suzette Kilos um, from the Kilo case. The the, the individuals whose homes are everything to them and, and who don't have the money um, to, to go in, and down to the legislature and beg them to protect their property rights, who don't have the connections. Um, that's what private property rights is all about. So a number of uh, people uh, across the political aisle went to their state legislatures and they passed laws. Uh, that made sure that this type of eminent domain abuse would not occur in the future. And those state laws vary from state to state, but almost every state has one. And essentially, they said public use actually means public use. Government cannot take private property from one individual to give it away to another government deems more desirable. And that was a very, very important reform movement, but I would argue that that uh, that is only part of the problem and that very very insidious violations of property rights still occur today uh, In the form of regulatory taking so regulatory takings are a lot more common um, And I would argue a lot more insidious than eminent domain a regulatory taking is when the government comes in doesn't take your property Away from you, but instead takes away your right to do something with your property your right uh, to sell your property or, or to rent it out to overnight guests. or um, in some cases, the government will say, well, if you want permission to develop your property or improve your property, uh, then you have to give the government money or you have to set aside part of your property as a wildlife preserve. All of these restrictions on the right to use or enjoy your private property are are takings. They're taking away a right from uh, from you, but because the government isn't taking away your private property altogether because they aren't completely taking title to the property, uh, oftentimes courts will say, well, that, that is not a taking um, and the government doesn't have to give you any kind of compensation for taking away your property rights, even if the government has significantly reduced the value of your property and taking away those rights. At least with eminent domain, when the government takes away your home or your property, it has to pay you for it. But with regulatory takings, oftentimes the government does not have to pay you. And so now you're stuck with the mortgage and, and with the taxes and with the liability for that property. But that property is worth much less, and you're no longer able to uh, use that property as you see fit. And so that, that is really the sad state of property rights today. Uh, at the Goldwater Institute, shortly after the Kelo case came down, Uh, We worked on a state-level reform that went beyond a lot of these post-Kilo reforms. It it, it says that the government has to pay you any time it takes away your property rights, whether that be by eminent domain or by regulatory takings. And it's it's a very simple proposition, but it's been extremely successful in Arizona over the past 12 years, because it sent a powerful uh, signal to government that if you want to take away people's property. Um, then you need to think about the costs of that regulation. Prior to uh, this this reform in Arizona, government officials never had to think about the cost, right? If they decided that, that we don't want people to be able to rent out their homes to overnight guests, or we don't want people to be able to build a garage on their property. Um, They don't have to think about the consequences to the property owner, the costs of that. They just pass those costs off to the property owner. But when you tell the government, well, you're going to have to pay if you take away somebody's property rights, then the government has to think about whether or not that regulation is really worth the cost of the decrease in value to that person's property. And sometimes it is worth it and that's fine, but this law just says that the costs have to be borne by the community as a whole if they want to make some sort of uh, aesthetic, put some sort of aesthetic regulation into place. And if the cost isn't worth it, course, the cost is always borne by somebody. If it if it's not worth it to the taxpayers and to the government to be able to put that regulation into place, then that cost should not have to be borne by the property owner. And we really hope that other states will take up this important reform. It's just been extremely successful in Arizona, um, and and you know, and it could. And again, it's not. It's it's about really reinstating the fact that private property is a fundamental right and that government should start at the baseline that property is a right and it should only take away property rights if it's absolutely necessary and if it's willing to compensate the property owner for that. So it really flips this whole, um, you know, private property rights are just permissions that the government gives you on its head and turns it back to the status of a fundamental right the private property is a fundamental right and that people have a right to use their property as they see fit so long as they're not harming anyone.
0: So what I'm hearing from you is that you don't think that it's wonderful to use Kilo to maybe you take private property to say build a casino.
2: (laughs) Yes, I do not think that it's wonderful. Well, I, I will put it this way. It's never wonderful for government to take property private property by force to give it away to another private party. Now, now what you're sort of alluding to, it, it, it's interesting. We talked about wealthy and well-connected people and how they can game the system or get around the system to make sure that their private property rights are, remain intact. Of course, when you have a system like this, you are also um setting up a system where people who are wealthy and well-connected can exploit government can use government powers in order to get them special privileges and favors and uh, you all might remember um, a case that the institute for justice took on where they defended a little old lady against donald trump Uh, at the time not our president uh, but the owner of a casino in atlantic city and mr trump decided that he wanted to take away this woman's property so that he could build a, not even a casino, but a parking garage for his limousines by the casino. And he went to the government and he asked the government to do that for him because he was unwilling to pay that woman for her property, so he decided to go to the government to get them to take away to steal that property for him. And. Luckily, the Institute for Justice came to the rescue. They defended that woman, and um, and her property rights were upheld. And he was not able to use the government to do that. Um, but that just shows you that, again, that you know property rights are important for the rest of us. It, the, it, it, when we fail to respect property rights, It it harms people who don't have those types of connections, and it encourages big businesses, it encourages wealthy individuals to work in conjunction with government, to collude with government in order to take away the rights of people who don't necessarily have the means or the ability to defend themselves. And and you know, is wonderful as the Goldwater Institute, the Institute for Justice, and the Pacific Legal Foundation, and and. Uh, all of the groups out there that litigate to defend people's private property rights are, there just simply aren't enough of us to go around. And most people, if they're not able to get that type of public interest help, they're just not able to afford attorneys to fight city hall and to fight wealthy businessmen who um, who use the government's coercive powers to take away people's rights. And that's why it's so important to have to ensure that the Constitution means something and to pass these state reforms, to reiterate that the Constitution means something and that private property rights are in fact essential so that government officials know the rules of the game going in and don't exploit them.
0: So I've been very impressed with uh, the work that you do at Goldwater, but one thing that I really don't quite understand is um, you seem to take a lot of pictures of hotel paintings.
1: What's that about? (laughs)
2: So to clarify for your listeners, that is not in conjunction with my role at the Goldwater Institute. The Goldwater Institute takes no position on hotel paintings, uh, but in, in my role uh, as Executive Vice President at the Goldwater Institute, I, I do a lot of traveling because the Goldwater Institute believes in the powers of federalism, and uh, and we work in states across the country in order to protect people's rights, which means that I'm often sent to states across the country to do just that. And one thing that I noticed, you know, especially when you're in a public interest organization, you're staying at whatever hotel uh, Priceline finds you, and I noticed that there's a lot of really odd art uh, on the walls uh, in hotels. Um, some of it, I would, I would say, it's a stretch to call it art. Um, and so I, I decided to start taking pictures uh, and and putting them on Instagram of of this hotel art. And so and the funny thing is, you can tell you've been traveling too much when you start to see the same pictures show up in the feed over and over again. But so yeah, I take pictures of hotel art. I put them up on Instagram. I, I usually don't include a caption. And, and I think it's just kind of funny um, to, to take a look at at the different things that people put on the walls in, hotel. I, in hotels. I think most people don't even notice them, but uh, I notice them a lot. And so I've started doing that on my personal Instagram. You know, the goal is to uh, is to make a calendar or a coffee book, coffee table book or something like that. So maybe I'll send that to you all for Christmas.